This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. I'm here in, um, am I allowed to say where we are in yeah, Sherman, can, Sherman Oaks? Sure. Okay, so I'm here in, in sunny Sherman Oaks at the palatial James Bond villain Blofeld-like headquarters of, of Ben Shapiro's empire. Um, it was a little daunting having to walk over the, uh, the shockingly narrow bridge over the uh, shark tank <laughs> to come in here. And so I have with me uh, Ben Shapiro. Ben, welcome to The Remnant. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So we just finished recording. So this is one of these weird fluctuations uh, with the space-time continuum. We just finished recording your Sunday special TV thing. Exactly. Right? Yep. But this will appear much earlier than that. I think so, yeah. Yeah. So even though uh, listeners know I have a deep and abiding, almost puritanical reluctance to even remotely promote my own book on my own podcast, I will uh, say that we did have a long conversation about the book, which I am grateful for. And, oh, yeah, that's great. Um, Both the book and the conversation. Thank you, thank you. Um, and we'll try to avoid some of that so we can keep that part of so people don't feel like... They're getting a repeat. They're getting a repeat of our car- conversation about that. But let's just stipulate... I'm not too worried about it. It'll be okay. But Ben, uh, you know, Ben has some views about the Enlightenment and, and the Jews... <laughs> Uh, that he feels I did not give sufficient respect for, and we had a d- discussion about that. And he asked me towards the end all sorts of questions about um, about Donald Trump that you'll just have to tune in to, to find out about. My main so, objection to the book is that it started, there are no Jews in this book. And that the- <laughs> um, because that's why I was really trying to get a blurb from Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, so, um, so the first question... No, uh, you know, in Washington, there is this sort of, among some conservative types, Washington and New York, there's this view among some conservative types that you are kind of like the Targaryen royal court in exile here in... I don't um, get naked nearly as often. Count your blessings. This is a good thing. But, <laughs> and that you're building your, you know, your Dothraki army out here, and at some point you're going to come riding east and um, wipe us all out. And that, you know. It sounds uh, kind of great. I'm, I'm not, yeah, no, I'm I'm not have, seeing I, the downside here. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I mean, our friend John Pedorz came out here uh, recently to visit you, and he said, oh, this place is amazing. And he was right. He didn't tell me about the Shark Tank, but he said it was amazing. But he's like, he's like, my God, in five years, we're all going to be working for Shapiro. So why don't you just sort of start off by like tell me, you know, do you have peaceful intentions towards the, you know everybody else? What is where does this empire end? I'm like I'm like President Trump. I don't betray my intentions. I just do. <laughs> you know, I don't want to give away. Of action. I, that's it. That's exactly right. I don't. I don't want to give away my strategy in advance. Only idiots and fools give away their strategy in advance. You know, look, our our goal here uh, has always been to grow audience size and, and reach out to to more and more people. We're lucky because because we started in the, the, the digital arena. Right. Our audience is very, very young. 
Yeah. So seventy percent of our podcast audience is under the age of thirty-five, and we have you know seven hundred fifty thousand to a million engagements on the podcast every day, uh-huh. uh, and then we have a hundred million page views on the website, and that also skews very young. So that's kind of a different crowd than I think a lot of Washington and New York conservatives are, are talking to. Yeah. But part of that's because I'm young. Part of it's because I'm not well known from talk radio. We're, we're actually reverse engineering my podcast so that it appears on talk radio now on places like WABC and KBC and, and uh-huh. big stations all over the country. But the goal uh, was was always to start with a certain core of people who agreed with a set of ideas and then and then to grow it out from there. I, honestly, I don't know. I don't, I don't know where we're going to be in, in 10 years. Uh, I don't, if you told us we were going to be here in two and a half, I think we'd have been shocked. I mean, yeah. The website didn't exist two and a half years ago. The podcast had 3,000 downloads a day yeah. two and a half years ago. So. And for, and for listeners, I should be clear, this place is just, it's, it's mammoth. I mean, I think you could see it from space. And <laughs> it's, you know, I, I, I recently was at Bloomberg in New York, and that place, it, it, was, it was like Aaron Sorkin was directing, because it was just people walking around the halls talking with each other all over the place, and it's got a little <laughs> of that here. But, um, so this is a question I kinda, I've had for a while, and I, I promise we'll get into meaty stuff, but, you know, there is a certain amount of fascination with what you're doing out here. Because it kind of took a lot of people by surprise. I mean, a friend of mine, Seth Stevenson, wrote a, wrote mm-hmm. did a profile of you. I'd known Seth for 25 years, so I agreed to talk to him, even though, you know, who knows what he was going to write about you. But I think it came out okay. Uh, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought the piece was shockingly fair. And I, I'll take all credit for that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it always seemed to me that historically there's always been sort of a little bit of a disadvantage for conservatives out on the West Coast in the sense that all the media center is on the East Coast. Uh, just Washington itself is on East Coast time, right? Yep. I mean, so like, you know, special report with Brett Bear, which is a great show, you know, and I'm proud to be on the panel. You know, it's about three o'clock in the afternoon out here. I mean, yeah, that's so, right. And so, like, whenever you talk to TV executives, just the ratings on the West Coast were through the floor, just because the and, and it's the wrong time of day. Yeah, one is the wrong time of day, and two, there's just there's this lag layover tradition of just not caring about what's going on back east, right? And so that always seemed to me like a disadvantage for conservatives who sort of set themselves out here. It seems to me that part of your advantage is, is turning that into an advantage, right? Is that because there is so little sort of aimed at the wet stuff that sort of that starts from the assumption that the listener, that the audience is on the West Coast, mm-hmm. that it feels fresher and more sort of relevant to them. Do you have a sense of that? I mean, is that, is that well, my, so am no, I just wrong about that? No, I think, I think that you're right. I think that it, it mostly is reflected in terms of content in the sense that I am completely uninterested in the insider baseball that dominates a lot of the discussion yeah. in D.C. and New York. I mean, you and I know a lot of the same sorts of people, and so we can do the the political geography that is sort of Jewish geography but political. Um, but that's not something that I like talking about. Like the stuff that I'll talk about it with you because we're friends. But other yeah, than yeah. that, uh, you know, like being out here, when I do the show, I'm not interested in the nitty gritty of particular bills. I'm not interested yeah. in who's up and who's down on a particular day inside the administration or outside the administration. It's it's not fantasy baseball. It's, yeah, yeah. it's much more like I get to sit out here and I get to develop ideas and then I get to try to see the nexus between those ideas and what and, and what's happening in the news. And I imagine that if you're in D.C. interacting with people from the administration or people in Congress every day and everybody's talking about certain things, there's a certain baseline assumption that you know the roots of what's being talked about. And I think that that's been a giant failure in conservative circles for a long time is everybody is starting at step two when they start having discussions about policy from D.C. and New York. And most people need to hear step one. Most people need to hear, okay, why is this important? Does this have any real-life ramifications? And I'm not even talking about economic ramifications of policy. I'm talking about the moral ramifications of the stuff that's happening. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, because I grew up in Hollywood, because I grew up in Los Angeles, there's a lot more emphasis on narrative and narrative power yeah. out here in L.A. Just 
so it almost oozes out of the place. Uh, and I, I think that that's not quite the same in, in D.C., where a lot more is about the Machiavellian yeah. machinations of folks. No, that's right. It's also just, I mean, I hate, hate when I have to talk about some piece of legislation's chances of passing oh, through them. Yeah. It, that's that's eat-your-spinach homework that I got to do. I would I'd much rather talk about the actual policy assumptions within the legislation, but, like, scoring, you know, the... Budget omnibus and the out years for the fiscal queen astray from the framfra blah blah blah. <laughs> I hate that stuff. Yep. But it for me it's part of the job. It's why you know I often refer to it as rank punditry because it's just rank to me. But so you had a really interesting piece which I wrote a column about um, for the LA Times recently about young conservatives versus old conservatives and why there is a split. And we don't have to rehearse the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You had a good conversation with Charlie Sykes about it. Um, where you guys were talking about me, which was very awkward and strange, but uh, it's all good stuff. Your ears were burning. It was yeah, it was, no, no, it was it was it was fine. It was nice to hear. I was just sitting sweating in the parking lot of a Home Depot listening to you guys talking about it. It was just very strange. But um, and then the I, and then ice came and deported you. It was all weird. Yeah, was, no. Before that, they you know they heard all the thumping sounds from my trunk, and I was like, <laughs> damn it, I got too distracted. But anyway, why don't you just give a very brief overview of why you think it is that young conservatives differ from older conservatives about what conservatism conservatism is and about Trump in general. So I think that uh, the, the divisions do run along two lines. One is the sort of broader concept of what the government should be doing, and one is the Trump question. And I think in many ways the Trump question is actually indicative of a deeper question also. So the the question of what conservatism is, a lot of conservatives tend to believe that, conser- or at least older conservatives tend to believe that it is the implementation of conservative policy from above. And they define conservative policy in a variety of ways, but Right now, that might mean tariffs, uh, or that might mean that might mean the government sponsoring traditional marriage, for example. And young people tend to think tolerance, diversity, stay out of my business. So the conservative version of tolerance and diversity for young people is stay out of my business. The leftist version of tolerance and diversity is I'm going to get in your business. Mm-hmm. But the conservative version is sort of libertarianism with regard to what government ought to do, which is why young conservatives tend to be pretty libertarian on immigration, on drugs, on guns. They're not libertarian on abortion because mm-hmm. the science is cut against libertarianism on abortion as far as protection of unborn life. Um, but there's no question that by poll numbers, young conservatives tend to be a lot more libertarian-leaning than older conservatives on these sorts of key issues. Then there's the question of Trump. And this is the one where there's a, a, a wider gap than the policy question. When you look at the polls, what you see is that conservatives between the ages of 18 and 24, 80% of them want somebody to primary Trump in 2020. I'm not sure you could find eight conservatives over the age of 65 in America yeah. who want somebody to primary Donald Trump. And the reason for that gap is because older conservatives have basically, they, they realize that the character battle for them was fought in the late 90s and they lost. Right? The, the character battle was a bad guy is president, he just lied, we'll impeach him, people should understand characters related to policy and characters related to who should be president. And then Bill Clinton is still a hero, right? And mm-hmm. Bill Clinton is still a guy people look up to. And so they figure, okay, well, at this point, the character question has been decided. I'm just going to vote for whatever policy gains I can get. And if I have to match up policy of Trump versus policy of Hillary, Trump all the way. Character is is a that concern. These mm-hmm. are people who may not have voted for Trump in the primaries, but this is how they, they are justifying the vote for Trump now. And I think that that's not completely unjustified. Young conservatives are looking at their peers. And for their peers, the question is not whether Trump is a moral man or a good man. The question is, what is your character if you back Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. Because they now have to go to all of their friends and say to them who they supported. And their friends are immediately going to say back to them, well, what about all these terrible things that he did? Mm-hmm. And young conservatives don't want to feel boxed into endorsing character that they don't like and that they find abhorrent to that that kind of libertarianish 
standard, that, that sort of tolerant, diverse standard. And that's really what Trump offends most, right, is that he's constantly violating taboos. Some, some, a few good, mostly bad. He's violating a lot of taboos with regard to that sort of tolerance standard. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of young conservatives uncomfortable. They say, well, how am I supposed to justify that to my friends? I can't have that conversation. And they're judging me. It's not they're judging Trump. They're judging me right. on, on that character question. Uh, and that does raise the deeper question of what the Republican Party really has to say about character, what older conservatives have to say about character more generally. And as I suggested at the end of the piece, I think that one of the ways you can bridge this gap is for older conservatives to make a basic acknowledgement that so many people refuse to make, which is you can like the dude's policy and still recognize that he's kind of a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Right? Donald Trump is not a good man, but he can do a lot of things that you like. But this failure to recognize that is creating this real rift between younger conservatives and older conservatives, where if you, if you even say to a group of older conservatives, Donald Trump's a bad man, which, again, I think the evidence is pretty solid on this. Uh, and I like his politics. I like mm-hmm. what he's been doing. I like all this stuff. A, on, on, on a lot of his policy, but not a guy I'd have babysit my kids. There's a, vis- there's a palpable tension that arises in rooms with conservatives over the age of 60, whereas if you say that in a room with conservatives under the age of 40, there's a sigh of relief. Like, yeah. oh, we can finally say that. Oh, good, we can finally right. say that. Uh, and I think it's necessary for conservatives to recognize this basic truth. Otherwise, what you're doing is alienating not only young conservatives, but everybody else who's young who is saying, you're willing to not only look the other way at, but pat on the head bad behavior because you're getting what you want. Right, right. So, so I, I agree with that almost entirely. I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm not even sure why I need the word almost in it. Just, I sort of want to, I want to put that asterisk there in case I come up with Listen some Listen to reason. it later. And- <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, this is one of my great abiding frustrations. And I, I talked about this with Steve Hayes on this podcast a while back, where one of the most dismaying things about mid-2016 was how many people, the the disconnect between what some of my friends, some of your friends would say when the microphone was on or when the camera phone was on, camera was on, and what they would say when it was off, right? And I just always thought that part of our obligation is not to lie, right? And one of the things that kind of broke my heart was how many people were mad at me for not living down to their expectations, Mm -hmm. right? They thought that I was just Mm going to be a a perfectly perfectly serviceable hack, right? And, but... The interesting change to me, or the dismaying change to me, is how a year later, a year and a half later, most of the people who were lying at the time aren't lying anymore. That they now have solved their cognitive dissonance by convincing themselves that Donald Trump isn't a man of bad character. Yes. Right? Yes. Like, I bet you, and I don't mean to be too cruel to Mike Pence, but he's a good stand-in for the phenomenon, right? I bet you when Donald Trump picked him to be VP, if you could truth serum... Mike Pence and talk to him in private, he would say, yeah, he's a sketchy guy, but I can do a lot of good and better me than all these other people. And we'll, you know, we got to steer him in the right direction. And he's got this connection. He'd make all these rationalizations. Most of them, all of them, I don't know, perfectly justifiable. You know, that's fine. I, I have the suspicion that if you pulled him aside today and gave him truth serum, he would tell you that Donald Trump can create a boulder too he- so heavy only he can lift it. <laughs> That he will bring in the greatest, you know, greatest crop yields east of the Urals that we our our, our party has ever seen, um, and I think because he believes it, and I think that's happened with a lot of my colleagues at Fox, that and so they just don't want to hear any complex argument about Trump. You got to buy the whole package. Well, right? I think that's certainly a common phenomenon. I don't know about Pence personally because I've I've met the vice president a couple of times, and I have a suspicion that. Even Mike Pence is as obsequious as he is in public. You give him the truth serum, and deep down, you know, Trump is Trump. Yeah. Um, but and I think that, I think there are a few people whose names 
we'll remain nameless, but we're looking at each other and we know who we're talking about, uh, who, who really have fallen into this trap of, of really starting to believe that Trump is a man of good character because he's giving them what they want. And that... And, uh, but I trust it, not just good character, that, but that a man, uh, you know, the whole 12th level chess, you oh, know... Well, that, that, yeah, that drives me insane. The yeah. underwater hungry, hungry hippos, upside down, backwards stuff. <laughs> that, that, all, all that is just absurd. And it, the thing is, everybody in the White House knows it's absurd. Right. I mean, like, it, it's not as though this is... That inside the White House, they know the secret. And out here, we've been kept in sort of this mythical darkness. But if you were able to remove the curtain from the wizard, then behind, there actually would be that giant face. It would not actually be you know, right. the, the weird guy just manipulating the, the controls. And the reality is that you pull back the curtain and Donald Trump's upstairs eating Cheetos and tweeting Fox and Friends. And this is clear to everyone to see. I don't understand why it's so difficult just to say that. And honestly, it's the best defense Trump has. Mm-hmm. Okay, because when Trump does dumb stuff, the best answer to Donald Trump does dumb, dumb stuff is because he does dumb stuff. Like, right. you could put that on his epitaph. Donald Trump did dumb stuff. Like, that's not, that, that's not any shock to anybody who's been watching him. And it feels like you're trying to manipulate me when you say otherwise. And uh, for a lot of young people who are looking for just an honest take, yeah. you can immediately rule anybody out who says Donald Trump is a good man with, with sterling character who knows exactly what he is doing and he's manipulating things. Look, the, the failures of the left are the failures of the left. They're not always the, the, the genius of Donald Trump. The only thing that is that, it, listen, I, I'm happy about all this. I'm happy that Trump is doing well. He's the president. I want to see him do well. I want to see him pursue policies that I like, which he's been doing. And I love watching the left fall on its face, although I do think it's very bad for the country that the left has become so radicalized sure. that they are, they are now attempting to tear down pretty much everything and everyone. But that said, to give Donald Trump credit for everything that the left is doing makes no more sense than to give Barack Obama credit for the right driving itself mad mm-hmm. during, some of the, during some of the Obama years, which I think happened as well. I mean, yeah. the, the, this reactionary feeling on both sides is really, really strong, and it's led to the conflation of Donald Trump is anti-left, therefore Donald Trump is conservative, therefore Donald Trump is good. And these three things do not follow. You can be anti-left, right. not conservative, and not good. Right. All, all these things are quite possible. So it's funny, because this is, I mean, get, get metaphysical for a second. I've written this a few times that one of the defining attributes of being a conservative is comfort with contradiction, right? And it's this idea that not all good things necessarily go together, that there's a, part of it comes from sort of religious conservatism that understands that most good things have a downside and most bad things have an upside, you know? Even, I mean, not to get too dark about this, but if you don't have the Holocaust, maybe you don't get Israel. I mean, there are, there are victories that are snatched from defeat and all the rest. And... It is, in essence, a, it is a function, an anatomical feature of the progressive mind that thinks all good things must go together, that they're all, all hard choices are false choices, right? And, and that there are no trade-offs. And this is what you know, economic conservatism teaches us, is that there's trade-offs to everything. And so for me, part of the reason why I write about the sort of tribalism taking over is that the unity of goodness is a tribal concept. Because back in, in evolutionary period, you know, the tribe was everything. It was your pol- or the troop or whatever you want, band. It was your politics. It was your religion. It was your social network. It was your friends. It was your entertainment. Everything was in the tribe, nothing outside a tribe, which is why fascism is a form of tribalism, because fascism was everything within the state, nothing outside of the state. And so the cult of personality stuff, when you start hearing from people about every, you know, every single time something goes Donald Trump's way, the argument has to be he meant to do that. Every time something doesn't go his way, it has to be because he was stabbed in the back or undermined. Or you just wait and see. He's plan- He's plotted this out. You know, the Bill Mitchell, 
kind of thing where, you know, in, literally Donald Trump could be eaten by a pack of Wolverines, <laughs> you know, on live television. And Bill Mitchell would be like, oh, the Wolverines are playing right into his hands. You just wait. Um, and, um, and so it, it, one of the things I find dismaying about it is it feels a little bit like when you start letting go of conservative dogma and the, and 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 the sort of cons- conser- fundamental philosophical conservative assumptions, you're kind of just joining the slipstream of a sort of a right-wing progressive kind of tribal politics. Yeah, I mean, well, th- this was, I think, the thing that was most disturbing to me, uh, probably, I would imagine, most disturbing to you in 2016. I'd spent my entire life in the conservative movement. Yeah. I, you know, I started writing a, a syndicated column. I was signed to write a syndicated column when I was 17. So I'm now 34. So I've literally spent half of my life doing this. I met Pappy Cannon at my bris. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's I not know, a good place to meet Pappy Cannon. No, as Rob Long likes to say, I think that explains some of Pat's views <laughs> on, on my people. <laughs> These people are barbarians. <laughs> uh, but it's, but it, I, I always had this feeling there was this vast group of people who had engaged with the ideas and who had, who had really thought about conservatism. And then Trump came along and Trump was was militantly anti-intellectual, right. militantly anti-ideas, militantly anti-even ideologies. Like he was this guy who just came along and he had a set of kind of guttural instincts and people went, yeah, that mirrors my instinct and I'm cool with that. So it took me a little while to get over the disappointment of realizing that there isn't a conservative movement. There, there are some people at the top uh, in terms of you know people who are commentators who spend their lives doing it, uh, who, who are combating the war of ideas between themselves. And then the question is who takes the banner and then it seems like there are just a lot of people who will follow the banner wherever it goes, mm-hmm. which is really pessimistic, but in a certain way, I guess it's optimistic in the sense that I don't think that this is a, there's a, a great theory going around after Trump won that there was this big Trumpist movement, this groundswell, and now he's going to reflect the, the policy priorities of Steve Bannon, or that he was suddenly going to embrace the, the kind of odd policy preferences of Ross Dudhat with regard to mm-hmm. kind of funding blue-collar areas and all of this, are, and that was the new movement. They voted for him because they wanted tariffs, because they wanted protectionism, they wanted subsidies. And it's like, well, no, that, that has nothing to do with it. They voted for him because he was anti-establishment, because he was, because he was anti-anti-Americanism, uh, and because he was anti-political correctness. You put those three things together, that basically explains the Trump phenomenon, and that means that anybody else who, who sort of picks up that banner, if they are not Donald Trump, could draw a similar level of support, yeah. which, makes, which makes a lot of sense. They can't be Mitt Romney. I think the one thing that, that, that Trump did change fundamentally, and this might be in a good way, it has its downsides and its upsides, as, as you were saying, uh, is that the days of the, of the genteel Republican leadership are over. There's, there's not, there's not, that's not going to come around for a while because he won. And so the, the gentility is, is sort of gone. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have to be you know, what, what Trump is, which is saying crude, vile things about people on a regular basis and Heidi Cruz's face and all this kind of stuff. But it does mean that you're going to need a more militant, hard-nosed brand of, of public figure. It's not going to be a lot of Paul Ryans and, and Mitt Romney's and maybe even Mitch McConnell's. You're going to get a lot more of Ted Cruz, actually. You're going to get a lot more people who, Rand Paul's, people, people who seem to be playing slug. You know, people, people who, are, who are going out there to punch, not to, not to dialogue. Yeah, I mean, let me push back. On, I want to push back on that in a second, but first, let's hold off for a second and and, and talk about our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring, posting your position to job sites and waiting, waiting for the right people to see it? ZipRecruiter knew there was a smarter way, so they built a platform that finds the right job candidates for you. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. These invitations have revolutionized how you find your next hire. In fact, 
80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. And ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them. Businesses of all sizes trust ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-N-G-O spells dingo. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, and then also, um, before I push back on that, so you, you said a minute ago that there is no conservative movement. I, I, I'll push back that, on, I want to push back on that just a tiny little bit, because having spent 20 years at National Review, going to all of the admittedly mostly Washington, New York kind of egghead circle kind of thing, and sort of following in the movement that Bill Buckley built, I do think there is a conservative movement, so, so to speak, but it's just much smaller than yeah, people, fair. you know, and it's like, um, but there are these institutions, there are people who are interested in this stuff. I can tell you right now, if I wrote a blog post tomorrow saying that Whitaker Chambers' Witness was a bad book, you know, I would need a food taster for a week, right? I mean, there, there, there's people out there who are still holding those flames. What, what do you think so, the numbers of, of like the, the true believer conservative movement is? Like, Because when I was growing up, I thought it's... Tens of millions of people. Yeah, no, it's, it's not it's, that. It's, 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 yeah. I agree, it's not that. And you, you can even sell that when you go to some place like CPAC, where there's the booths for the guys from ISI and from you know the various think tanks and the various egghead magazines and journals. And then there are probably three times as many booths selling gold coins and <laughs> tri-corner hats and all that kind of stuff. Um, <clears throat> but that gets to the, the second thing I wanted to ask about was getting back to the youth stuff for just a second. In your piece, you were talking about you know, you're talking about young conservatives, but then when you're actually relying on data, you were talking about young Republicans, right? Because that's mm -hmm. where the data yeah, yeah. is going to check, right? Um, or lean Republican and that kind of thing. And it seems to me that, first of all, there is an important distinction to be made between Republican and conservative sure. that got really blurred under Bush and obliterated in some ways under Trump. But, you know, I think Ross Douthat made this point, but isn't part of the problem that a conservative movement that is, or a Republican party that is trying to reach out to young self-identified conservatives, well that's just the youth auxiliary wing of the conservative movement, which by, we just said is pretty small, right? Mm -hmm. So, and pleasing those people, pleasing the people who actually do, you know, read your site, read National Review, follow these kinds of things, are interested in the ideas, that is going to be a very small subset of even people who are, call themselves Republican. Right. And so, Maybe the issue isn't trying to reach out to the young Republic, uh, young Republicans with conservatism at all in the first place, right? I mean, what what is the argument for for making the political case for for the Republican Party trying to care about young conservatives rather than try to just care about young voters and not necessarily have a conservative pitch to them? Well, I think that the the, the problem is that if you're not reaching out to young conservatives, it's going to be I, I I don't see the path to reaching out to young voters, at least not the way that they're going right now, because. 
Uh, you know, Trump obviously has the levels of personal toxicity for Trump among young conservatives pale in comparison to the levels of toxicity That's for fair. President Trump yeah. among young voters more generally. So uh, the, the prescriptions that I'm making about young conservatives apply more generally to young voters as well by data. Um, but beyond that, I think that what is important to recognize is how people, how people vote. The number of people who are engaged is really low. And then those people talk to all of their friends about politics and how they're going to vote. And there is an off switch when somebody's making an argument to you. And that off switch comes when they make a statement that you find morally reprehensible and morally objectionable in a deep way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now, there's a big off switch. And that off switch is, I think Trump's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, if, and if, you, uh, if, you make, if you turn that switch off, it doesn't matter what the rest of your sentence is. Uh, and that's, that might not be fair. It might not be right. But that's the way it works with young people. In the same way that in Hollywood, same-sex marriage was the only issue that mattered in yeah. this town for 20 years. Yeah. You know, if you were on the wrong side of the same-sex marriage issue, you literally would not work. It didn't matter if you were at your church volunteering every night. Well, probably that was another strike against you. Mm-hmm. But if you were, but if it didn't matter if you were if you were at a homeless kitchen, right. you know, every vegan, day. vegan homeless, vegan kitchen. homeless <laughs> kitchen, exactly. And you pet kittens every single evening. Yeah. N- none of that mattered. You had no children, but you had seven dogs. None of this would help you in any way. The yeah. only thing that mattered was same-sex marriage. Right now. Trump has become this black hole around which all politics revolves. Uh, and that's, you know, in large part because the media have decided to make him so. Ideologically, I don't think that he is. I don't think that he has any draw ideologically, but he can be an off-putting factor, which is yeah. why I think that Trump's best, the Republicans' best shot of winning over young people is for them to continue policies that they're pursuing, which so far are working, and have him go hide in a basement for two years. Yeah. If he, if, he, if he just disappeared for two years, like if you just only heard from him when he did a rally every so often in Ohio or something... I think he'd be up in the 50s in terms of approval rating, and I think he'd have a pretty solid shot at re-election. Yeah, no, I I think that's right. I'm an inveterate uh, eavesdropper, and so like when I'm in airports and restaurants, and uh, it is amazing how much he just takes up people's headspace. Oh yeah, and I think for sort of and it's quite of the realm to to kind of go ah Trump, yeah, ah that guy, and it's for suburban suburban Republicans they uh, they just they don't want to argue about him and they resent having to defend him and I right. Think, Pushes them away, and then what that creates is then a bunch of people who are not suburban Republicans because so why are you guys such pansies? Yeah, why yeah. can't you know the reason you're doing this because you don't want to hear from your liberal friends at your cocktail parties? It's like, yeah. well, maybe I have objections, and my liberal friends have objections, and everybody should have objections to this stuff. Right. I may agree with you on all the policy, but I just I don't understand how you can make the argument the guy's a great character when he literally spent $130,000 to shut up a porn star in advance of the election that he had a one-night stand with like a month after his wife had a baby. Yeah. I'm sorry, by no standard of human behavior is this good behavior. Right. No, and, 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 and the thing, I mean, we can get off Trump in a second, but the, the you know, people, you know, the argument I'll run into a lot now is very much the argument that you had with Clinton, where, uh, well, but this, you know, sex doesn't matter, sexual morality doesn't matter, that's not what you hire someone for, blah, 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 blah. And so my my retort is okay. Well, you come up with a definition of good character, right? I mean, <laughs> you read the art of the deal. He brags about uh, breaking his word, paying people pennies on the dollar. He's notorious for all these kinds of things. Um, his relationship with to the truth is incidental, dicey. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so it's very difficult to come up with any definition of good character that that he can clear. And so the ultimate argument is, is the character doesn't matter. Right. And that's the big gap. I think that a lot of a lot of older conservatives basically at this point say, well, right. OK, fine. Yeah. you know, OK, character doesn't matter. Then the cognitive dissonance kicks in. They say, well, I still feel kind of uncomfortable. So character does matter. And he's great. Right. But but in reality, what they're really saying, and I, I think there's an argument to be made for this, is that that character character doesn't matter as much as policy wins. I think that's short-sighted because I think the people in the end do tend to vote for people. They don't tend to vote for bags of policy. Right. Uh, and I think it's also short-sighted in the sense that 
If people think that Clinton didn't pay a price, Clinton did pay a pretty heavy price for his character. I mean, his, his VP didn't end up becoming president in an election he clearly should have won. He, his wife ended up being destroyed in public politics, not once but twice in yeah. presidential races. If she had not been married to Bill, she wouldn't have been running. But if she had just been any other woman, she wouldn't have gotten hit with the same amount of garbage. Yeah. That was all blowback from his character, largely. Uh, so uh, I still think character matters. I think a lot of young people do, too. And again, I think that when you're young, you're still trying to define how the world thinks of you. Right. When you're older, you you feel a little more comfortable in your own skin. Yeah. It's like I can just it's it's like it's like my grandmother. She'll say anything. It doesn't matter who's at the table. I'm just <laughs> going to say whatever I feel like. I'm at the table. Yeah. Screw you. I'm old. Yeah. And it's in for younger people. It's like I'm still trying to make clear to people that I'm not a bad person. Here's my brand. I, they right. want to figure out what their brand is, so to speak. Exactly. Right? And the entire left's brand for as long as I've been alive, has been to try and slander Republicans as racist, sexist, bigot, homophobes. Right. And our defense has always been, but we're not any of those things, and you're lying. Right. And so when then they say, okay, yeah, well, what about your president who said X, Y, and Z? And you go, right, he's a great guy. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to make that defense, as opposed yeah. to just saying, I like a lot of his policies, but yeah, what he said was, was terrible. I don't understand why that that's even a tough thing to say. It's, just, yeah. it's bewildering to me why you can't just say, yeah, what he said about Charlottesville, that was gross. You shouldn't have said that. That was yeah. really bad. Yeah. And, 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 then, and then you can fight back on the idiotic leftist idea that I have to somehow buck his tax policy because I don't like what he said about Charlottesville, right. which is just as stupid. Yeah, no, I agree with that entirely. I mean, the, this idea that, you know, I have to all of a sudden be against tax cuts because Donald Trump is for tax cuts is, is insane to me, right? I mean, um, and you, I hear this all the time, you know, from... Why don't you just become a Democrat? Like, right. well, because I don't want to be a Democrat. That's why. Yeah, <laughs> like, no, exactly. Um, and it's weird because I get, I get, I'll get praise for being this consistent conservative who hasn't abandoned your principles and yada, yada, yada from the sort of liberal set, and at the same time, they're like, but so why is it again that you want the capital to be moved to Jerusalem? Why is it that you want, that you're in favor of tax cuts? And I was like, because you just said I'm a consistent conservative, you know? <laughs> because I've held these beliefs since before Donald Trump held them, and I will hold them after he no longer holds them. That's like, right. what is this? this That's is right. not... But, okay, so all of this being said, uh, earlier, you know, um, when you were um, kicking some interns into the Shark Tank, you were telling me that the reaction to the, particularly the Hamas stuff, is driving you into a Trumpy. So it's, it's hard. It's hard not to. I mean, just in, in, it's not turning me into. I think Donald Trump's a wonderful man, but anytime you you make the the black in a, in a black and white photo darker, everything else looks lighter. And yeah. and right now, what you're looking at is the the media just they're so egregious. And at a certain point, you have to think it's on purpose because no one can possibly be this blind. But the Hamas coverage, where Hamas is coming out like guys. We sent a bunch of our terrorists to go get killed at the front lines, and then we, like, shield them with babies. And also, we were trying to break into the country and murder, like, a crap load of people and burn down their farms. And, you know, this kite right here with the swastika on it? We're not doing that, like, just for trolling purposes because we actually want to burn Jews. Right. The media's like, you're a bunch of innocent folks, aren't you? Or just flying kites, like, like in Mary Poppins. <laughs> and at a certain point, they're not hiding the ball. So that means the media have, a, have something else going on that's, that's really disturbing. And, you know, I... I I'm pretty hesitant to use the term anti-Semitism mm-hmm. uh, because I just think that it's it's overused. I think the alt-right isn't like the hardcore alt-right was anti-Semitic in 2016. I think you know Richard Spencer and Jared Taylor and this this whole crew, that's anti-Semitism. Louis Farrakhan's an anti-Semite. I'm not sure the media are anti-Semitic. I think it's more they're they're anti-Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Israel is an outpost of of imperialistic West in this grand native territory. Uh, right. they, they they really object to that. But when you lie that blatantly, it just makes it. It makes it hard for me not to at least nod tacitly when Trump says things like fake news, even when he's over-applying the label. Mm-hmm. Because the, the problem, my, my, my big criticism of Trump using the fake news label is he uses it for everything that doesn't agree with Donald Trump. Right. And they'll say, well, your crowd size wasn't that big. They'll go, fake news. It's like, well, no, right. your crowd size wasn't that big. He even basically admitted in a recent tweet saying that 
negative coverage, parentheses, right. fake news. <laughs> exactly. You know, which again, you're not supposed to say that part out loud. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, 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 but then when they actually engage in fake news, I can't defend, and I'm not yeah. going to defend people who are, who are doing that. Uh, obviously, the most, obvious, the, the most recent example was this whole MS-13 thing where uh, a sheriff said, yeah, we had these people from MS-13, we can't even deport those. And then he said, some of these people coming over the border, they're animals. And the media ran with headlines. He calls illegal immigrants animals. And it's like, well, he, he didn't, wasn't talking about all illegal immigrants. Now, would it like shock me if Donald Trump said something like that in the privacy of, of his own room? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be completely shocked if he said something like that because the guy talks like that. But the idea that he, like, I don't think that Donald Trump actually believes that all illegal immigrants are animals like Mara Salvatrucha. I mean, like, that's, that's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, I mean, AP had to walk it back. New York Times, I'm sure, is going to walk it back. They're going to have to walk it back because it was just that bad. And then my, my favorite part about the media is they say, oh, well, you know, you guys only hate the media because, because we're anti-Trump. You only hate it because Trump told you to hate us. It's like Bernard Goldberg came out with bias in 2001. Yeah. Okay, Buckley was talking about media bias in the 1960s. Yeah. This is, it's, it's not that Donald Trump made us hate you. We hated you before. We think that you suck at your jobs. Yeah. Uh, or at least that, that you are, are fibbing about what you're trying to do in many cases. I think there are some good journalists out there, obviously. And I think that... Believe it or not, I think Maggie Haberman tries to do her job. I think that I think that Jake Tapper tries to do his job, and I think everybody has their blind spots. And mm-hmm. journalists are not are not immune to this. But there are some people trying to do their jobs. But this week, the coverage has been so bad that I just uh, I don't know how you're even pretending to do your jobs with that kind of coverage. Yeah, I mean, I, I, on the Hamas thing, I, I agree 100. percent The it is it, it to me it is as pristine an example of how um, service to narrative can trump everything else. And part of it is, I, I, think, I, I honestly do think a part of it, it comes from the fact that the social milieu of the reporters who live in the Middle East who cover this stuff, they live, date, socialize among all these people from these NGOs. And they're all, they're just simply bought into this mythic Arabist narrative about Israel. And a lot of the coverage is they're hiring local people who are actually like dealing with Hamas on a daily basis. Right. In many of these cases. Right. Like they have photographers who are embedded with Hamas on a daily basis. But in this case, the just the the egregiousness of the 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 PR effort was so <laughs> bad that you would think just out of self respect, you know, there would be a little more interest in pointing out that there are no attacks on the West <laughs> Bank, you know, the Arab Street is not inflamed. The head of Hamas admitted that most of the people who were killed were part of Hamas. Five, six of them. That was my favorite yeah. part. Is when he goes to fifty out of the sixty-two. They, they were they were Hamas members, and then they said they admit that three more were, were Islamic Jihad, which means that fifty-three out of the sixty-two people who were killed were terrorists. And the media is running with indiscriminate killing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I know when I go to my lectures, you know, there are three thousand people there. I know when I take some confetti and throw it in the audience. Of the sixty people that it hits, fifty of them are terrorists. Right, Just right. randomly, right. it's it's yeah. amazing yeah. how that works. It's the most random thing. And the most random thing ever. Yeah, it, it, I was saying to you earlier that the media coverage of this, it, it feels like watching that that Black Knight scene from Monty Python, the Holy Grail, where the where the media are the Black Knight. They're just sitting there, and Hamas is carving off parts of their narrative. Yeah, yeah. And they're just, no, no problem. Yeah. I don't believe you. Yeah. My, my arm is fine. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> um, on the MS-13 thing, I, I want to push back just slightly mm-hmm. on this. I agree that it was quoted out of context, and it was unfair to him. But it is, and I, and I, have, I have no problem... You say you like MS-13, Jonah? Is that where this is going? <laughs> um, totally. going to carve my heart out and pull it out while I'm still living? Yeah, but that's the last of the Mohican thing for me. <laughs> um, uh, uh, the, there is a long history with, with, with Donald Trump of trying to make it sound like the only people who are close, crossing the border are MS-13 types. Yeah, I agree. 
I have no problem saying that MS-13 is a bunch of animals, right? I have no problem, you know, it seems to me that, that I get it. You know, I have friends who say you shouldn't dehumanize anybody. And in, in theory, I think that's a, a noble position to take. At the same time, if somebody goes to extraordinary lengths to dehumanize themselves, you know, I'm going to take yes for an answer from them. You know? if, if your slogan is rape, steal, control. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I have a yeah. pretty good indicator you're not. That's right. You know, if, if you you're not up for a head of AI, if that's, if that's your slogan. If, if you think it's okay to rape and murder people, then I'm <laughs> going gonna, I'm gonna to take you at your word. You know? you know, particularly if you have it tattooed on your forehead or something like that, right? <laughs> but when Trump says, you know, this to me is, you know, and a lot of, a lot of my friends, including you, um, were, were very angry about the press coverage of this. And I get that because the press did, I think, go too far on it. But at the same time, I think there was a, there's a subtler criticism to be made, which is that he does take, he wants to make it sound like the we have to close the border because everybody who's crossing the border are, are rapists and murderers. And he has said yeah, as not, much many, many times. Right, no, so I agree, that, but, but you've got to make a clean bust where there's a clean bust. And yeah, this yeah, is not fair. a clean bust. So, it's, so like in his original speech where he was talking about there are many people who cross the border. They're rapists and murderers, and some are some are good people. Yeah. And it's true that if you reverse the sentence, then it wouldn't be quite as bad if he said some are good people, but there are some rapists and murderers. Right, right, right. And you would have been like, okay, fine. But because of the way he talks, it makes it sound as though now I don't know what's in his head. But and, and, he the, repeats to, this, and the tone the of the tone, some are good people. It was like was it's so, throwaway. Exactly. Was so clearly, all right, I got to pander to these people, you know. And this, all right, so some of them aren't rapists and murderers. Fine, you know. Right. That kind of and thing. so my, my, the only point here is that like there's this is what's amazing about what the media are doing. It's not like he's giving you nothing to work with here, guys. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. like, if, if you want to go after President Trump, there are plenty of ways you can go after President Trump. And you've been trying to get him on the same score here for a couple of years. It's yeah. not working, obviously. So taking him out of context is just no, I egregious. Agree but, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, like, the the extent of the egregious media coverage, the Hamas thing is way, way worse than, than the, the MS-13 thing. Yeah, yeah. Every aspect of it. I mean, the whole, like, oh, it's his fault because he moved the embassy to Jerusalem and therefore they're protesting. You're right. Until now, Hamas was fantastic. Yeah. Until now, they've just been the nicest guys in the world. The minute we moved that embassy, everything changed. Yeah. You know? And also, there's this, this there's the, all these other weird, I mean, it, it's, it's one of these kinds of stories where if you let people just say what they think, they reveal so much about themselves. Oh, yeah, that Damon Linker tweet, the one where he said, like, if if it's only one side dying, then it's called a massacre. It's not called a battle. Yeah, which is insane. Like, you know What? I remember getting into an argument. They built an entire state to avoid this line of argument, you understand. I, I got into an argument with Juan Williams on Special Report 10 years ago or five years, something, a long time ago, you know, back when you were in high school. <laughs> and uh, and he was saying, you know, people talk about how, you know, Israel's vulnerable. And he went on this big rant about how, it's an argument you hear a lot. It's the most well-armed country in the region. It's got the best military. And I was like, yeah, but Juan, that's because all of their neighbors want to kill them. <laughs> you know, if you walk into the, some, in the Old West and everybody in the saloon wants to kill you, of course you're going to bring a lot of guns, you know? <laughs> um, and it's, th it's this kind of assumption that somehow it's unfair. It's ungentlemanly for the for Western Israel country to... To defend its people. It's just a very strange sort of insight into the mind of people. It's so maddening. I mean, it's so mad. The, the, the whole argument, why didn't, did Israel really, from people who have never served a day in the military in their life, right? I didn't know that. So I'm not going to criticize military tactics, but couldn't Israel have, you know, fired rubber bullets or couldn't they have fired yeah. water balloons at people or water cannon? You have to inform them, no, a water cannon only goes so far. It's like, right. Well, you think Israel is looking for these headlines? You think Israel is interested in shooting Palestinians so that there can be plastered across the front pages of the New York Times how terrible Israel is? Like, the last thing Israel wants to do is kill Palestinians. 
the, the reason that they killed all these people is because, number one, the vast majority of them were terrorists, and number two, they were trying to break through the border so that they could flood Israel proper with thousands of terrorists, right. at which point Israel has to mow down thousands of people, right. which they don't want to do. I mean, it's just, it's insane. Well, also, just, I mean, you hear this all of the time when, when, so, and look, let's, uh, let's concede. Palestinians are in a crappy situation, but it's largely one of their own making. I mean, there are solutions to these things. Electing and, a terrorist group who builds terror tunnels instead of funding its people turns out to really bad strategy yeah, for governments. that's right. That's right. I mean, and if, you know, what would be absolute kryptonite to Jews is the Gandhi model or the Martin Luther King 100%. model. hundred percent. You know, and 100%. like, there's no, and, but, but here, the, the, my point is, is every single time there's one of these sorts of confrontations, Twitter lights up, TV lights up with how the Jews want to commit genocide, the Jews want to do all, or the Israelis want to kill all these people. And the thing is, if the Israelis were bent on genocide, why do they wait for the Palestinians to attack? They could just carpet bomb Gaza tomorrow. They don't want to do that. Well, that's, you know? the, that's the other thing. I mean, they have 40,000 people who are all protesting and rioting along the border, and 50 people get killed. Israel has complete military ground and air superiority. Right. If Israel wants to slaughter people, Israel could do that wholesale. Right. I mean, if, they, if they're perpetuating a genocide, this is the worst genocide anybody's ever seen, considering that the population of the Palestinians has been dramatically increasing every year for the last 60 years. Right. So it's, it, none of it makes any sense. So what's your preferred solution to the Israel problem? I don't think there's a solution. I think that this, this just continues forever. I, I legitimately, like, when I was younger, I had these utopian idiotic solutions, uh, which I've disowned because I think they're immoral. Um, but, you know, now I think that the best you're going to do is basically a population separation uh, and security. And that's the, this is going to continue ad infinitum. I think the Israelis will come to the same conclusion. The Israeli left is basically dead. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. Merits, which used to be a major party, it's, has like two guys. It's, it's alive and well at J Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even, even labor, right, in Israel has recognized that there are no land concessions to be made here. I mean, there's no deal on the table. So it, everybody realizes at this point that barring some sort of incredible Sadat-esque leader who comes along and says to his own people, sit down and shut up. Yeah. I need to make a deal right now. You're going to thank me later. But why would they do that? They're getting hundreds of millions of dollars and they're stocking it away in their Swiss banks. And yeah. and right now, they, they have the opportunity to do that. They could even blame the Saudis if they wanted because the Saudis are pressuring them to do it. But uh, I, I don't think there's... I don't think every situation has a solution. I don't think Syria has a solution. I don't think this has a solution. I think that the best you can do is status quo, maybe. Yeah, I, I, I look at it a little differently. I, I, I think... There's no solution right now, right? Right, I mean, yeah. if the situation changes, maybe. Um, but the solution comes, it has to come, you know, the model has to be something like the Northern Ireland stuff, where you get enough economic prosperity, you get enough opportunity where people just sort of move on from this kind of thing. And the Middle East is so far from that right now. There's no way. And, um, and so it may just have to be this sucky generational problem. It seems to me, I mean, you know you know more about the Northern Ireland situation than I do, but it seems like that was a conflict that started off as religious and then became nationalistic and then became political and then got solved. Yeah. And and this one is still religious, and the religious conflict is not going away anytime soon. That's right. And, but it, but what, what solved it in a lot of ways in Northern Ireland was just simply the fact that people had other opportunities that made these religious nationalist squabbles seem less important when you have nothing this is the thing that gives you this great source of meaning and, but, you know? and I, I think by the same token when you have this great sort of meaning you can live with nothing and i think that, that, that that's there's right. a way to think about it the other way i don't think that this is and i know this isn't what you're saying but i don't think it's give isis jobs and everything goes well i think no, that no, this no. is i think this is you know the, this is a deeply entrenched cultural problem within the Palestinian you have population. to change you have to change the hearts on the hearts and minds on the ground right. 
And that's not something the UN is at all interested in doing. And one of the things that drives me crazy about the other Arab countries is, I mean, at the end of World War II, at the end of the, the Pakistan-India stuff, there were refugees all over the place. My father-in-law was a refugee. And Europe took in a bunch. America took in a bunch. Um, lots of people said, well, I'm just never moving home again and all that kind of stuff. The Arabs have kept millions of Palestinians in these, you know, refugee camps. Um, Not just in Israel, right? In Lebanon, in oh, yeah, Syria. All over the place. Like, yeah, all yeah, yeah. Jordan was a giant refugee camp, basically. And they use them basically, I mean, there are problems with the analogy, obviously, but they, there's, a very, there's a real similarity between the way the Arab world treated the Palestinians and the way, you know, Germany talked about the Sudeten Germans, right? Mm -hmm. It is this useful ethnic prop that we can sort of say, look how we're being disrespected, but in reality, not want to I mean, do anything no, to improve their circumstances. This is, I mean, this is exactly right. The, the, the fact is that at the exact same time when Palestinian refugees were being created, either voluntarily because people, people were leaving it out of the way of war or because they were afraid of, of Israelis or whatever it was, at the exact same time, just as many Jews, maybe more Jews, were expelled from Arab countries right. at literally the exact same time. My in-laws, you know, their parents left Morocco because yeah. all of these Jews were expelled from Morocco yeah. at the exact same time. I mean, they, they, were, they were forced to leave Iraq. They were forced to leave yeah. Jordan. They like were forced to leave Egypt. Like a quarter of Baghdad professional class were all Jews. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know? And all these people were taken into Israel. And guess what? None of them have gone back to Iraq and said, I want my ancestral home back. They all right. went back to Israel and said, okay. Israel said, we'll take all these people in. It's, it's pretty obvious what's been going on here. And... What it's going to take is, is the same thing that foreign, so much of foreign policy, we think we can compel people to do things if we are nice to them yeah. or if we, just, if we treat them well. We, we, treat the, we treat foreign policy like it's domestic policy consideration where we're all friends sitting around the table. And the reality is that so much of foreign policy is about recognizing the other person is not going to do anything that you can't force them to do unless they want to do it, yeah. which is why you know, all the talk about North Korea giving up its bomb North Korea will give up his bomb when it's damn well good and ready to give up his bomb. It's not going to do it just because it feels just because Donald Trump makes says exactly the right words, right. Or, or Barack Obama makes a deal with Iran. Well, now that he said the right words to Iran, they're going to give up their bomb. Look, if Iran wanted a fully open economy, Iran could have given up its bomb ten years ago. They could have they could have given up right. their nuclear program. They have a bomb, but they could have given up their nuclear <coughs> program years ago. They'd have a fully open economy, integrated with the world economy. They'd been seen as moderate. There wouldn't be any problem. The, the, the only two cases that I'm aware of of a, an active nuclear program or a nuclear-developed and armed country that have given up their nuclear weapons are South Africa and Libya, and both of them did it voluntarily, not because we went to them and said, listen, you do this or we'll, or we'll sanction you. Yeah, or Ukraine, you. there were a couple of the Soviet satellite countries. Right, but they gave, right, yeah. they, they gave the, right, exactly, the Soviet satellite countries, but they couldn't maintain their nuclear arsenals, right. and also we gave them security guarantees in return. Right. Um, the, but that it's, Obama clawed back a lot of them. <laughs> anyway, that's, exactly. That. Um, all right, so... Uh, uh, now onto the, the 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 really vital and important stuff. First of all, I was shocked. I thought that because I had, I had on pretty good authority that 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 you died at the end of Avengers: Infinity War. And um, <laughs> but um, what, that's Michael Knowles. We got rid of him at the end of Avengers. <laughs> <laughs> what what did you think of it? Uh, so I felt deeply cheated uh -huh. by it. Uh, I felt like. You did, guys, you know, did you know the ending going in? No, I did not. Okay, I didn't. Uh, either. And, and I felt like, and I felt like all the way up to the end, I was like. Okay, okay, okay. I'm not sure why we're following around like a couple of characters I don't care about, but yeah, yeah. I, I was very. But all the Thor and Guardians of the Galaxy stuff, all that stuff was great. Like yeah, yeah. They, they, they should definitely. Pod Horst is right. John is right that they should they should totally uh, do a Chris Pratt uh, and uh, Chris uh, Hemsworth like buddy road show. Movie. Yeah, no, it'd be amazing. Really it'd be so good. But yeah. uh, but the I was like, okay, this is fun. It's a normal Marvel movie. It's got a couple of touches. Kind of like it. Uh, it doesn't have a lot of plot, but all right. I mean, I can live with it. And they got to the end, and I was like. 
he, he does the thing that he does at the end. We'll spoil it, because if you haven't seen it by now, you're not seeing it. He snaps yeah, yeah. his fingers, and the people start to disappear. And I thought, oh, I like this. This is good. Uh-huh. Like the fir- and the first couple of people disappear, like, wow, that's kind of that's ballsy that they, that they knocked off that guy. And then they knock off Black Panther. Right. And at that point, I was like, you go F yourself. Like, you just, you sucked me into this theater, and you made me spend three hours of my life yeah, yeah. and 35 bucks of my movie to kill off a character I know for a fact you're not killing off, because you're not killing off your $1 billion no. enterprise right. because you're, because you're going to shock the audience. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, just no. So that, that really, that pissed me off. I was like, you know what you could have done? If you really wanted to do this and not screw me over, all you had to do was start off the movie with a screen, like a, a Star Wars screen that says, Thanos has gained all six Infinity Stones. And then you have Thanos, a flashback of him when he's a kid, right, in this area where everybody's dying in poverty, and he's saying, we need to kill half the people. They're like, no, we can't. And then everyone dies. So you have the flashback of him, very sympathetic. And then you have flash forward, and he's thinking, and he snaps his fingers, and half the people disappear. And that's the first three minutes of the movie. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. you get to the actual movie. Right? Well, that's, Which, I think the actual movie is the sequel, right? I understand, yeah. and so I just felt like, like, I understand you're trying to milk me for cash. I understand, yeah. but don't make it so transparent that you're trying to milk me for cash. Especially when you're, like, clawing at my heartstrings with, I'm supposed to feel bad because Spider-Man died. Yeah, like, yeah. You're not killing Spider-Man. Of course not. You're, yeah, you yeah. just made a movie with him. Like, that's not, that's not even a thing. So, it's funny, because um, <laughs> I had almost the identical reaction. There's a scene in Ocean's 13, you know, the third Ocean's 11 movie. It's terrible, but... Um, <laughs> where you're the guy who saw it, okay. At the very end... <laughs> Um, when they're ripping off Al Pacino, uh, his casino, they do these like floating price tags of how much money each person at the casino is stealing from him. Yeah. And I was like, they should have had the price tag of the box office receipts <laughs> floating over like Black Panther and Spider-Man. And I was like, there's no way that like the board, of, the board of directors of Disney, if they were taking this seriously, would be like, wait, what a second? We're, wait a second, we're throwing away like... Two thirds of our brand value. I mean, it, so it's, it's just, yeah, it's so, so insulting. That was sort of I had obvious. the same reaction to that that my mom had to Titanic. The first time, I, my mom's a very practical person and uh, runs companies and everything. And she, the first time she saw Titanic, she they, she watches the whole movie and she's like, okay, this is kind of dumb, but okay. And they get to uh-huh. the very end. An old lady takes the, the diamond and throws it in the water. And she stands up and she shouts, "Come on!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hated that because first of all. You know, not to you have be, grandkids, like you could pass on the wealth. Not to be too to charity. Not to be too Seinfeldy, but you know. First of all, the old lady's first of all, she's a bit of a tramp, but also <laughs> um, a total liar. I mean, she's just like not a good person. And like, I agree, like the idea of chucking, you know, a priceless diamond into the water for no reason. Yeah, I mean, it, like uh, imagine if instead, I mean, because all commodities just move over on the damn door, and then you could have lived and kept the diamond. How about that? Um, imagine, so like, because all commodities are fungible, right? So imagine instead <laughs> the images of her with a forklift dumping. <laughs> malaria pills that could save small children's lives in Africa into the ocean, right? I mean, like, um, I mean, who's she screwing? Who's she sticking it to? This this guy who spent his his life searching for the Titanic in search of this thing is like, ha ha, I got you. Like, like who's she punishing? Yeah, who's she punishing? Burn. Anyway, that, that, that crap drive me, drove me crazy. Um, yeah, that movie, that, ma- that movie made me nuts. What'd you think of the, what'd you think of uh, the last Star Wars film? Uh, I was, yeah. Yeah, it's they're becoming they're becoming fun sort of action Star like Wars Marvel movies. movies. Yeah, yeah, they're becoming Marvel movies, and, and what drives me crazy, and and I have to admit that this damn most of the they're getting better, right? So mm-hmm. let's yeah. be clear oh, about that. Force so Awakens was terrible. Yeah, so they're getting better, and the prequels were, you know, if I were Czar, we would be, you know, George Lucas would be fed his own fingers for years <laughs> to come. Um, but uh, you know, I, I'm 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 a big believer in. 
staying loyal to the the rules of the fantasy universe that you've created. Yep. And the great violence that Lucas did in the prequels, where in part, like the thing that really pissed me off, just to stick it to George W. Bush, they threw away the entire metaphysical theology of the Force, right? Mm-hmm. So we were both raised on these movies. Oh, yeah. We were raised on the proposition that there's a light side and a dark side, right? And never the twain shall meet. One is good, one is evil. And just because someone didn't like Bush's, if you're not with us, you're against this stuff, you have Obi-Wan Kenobi saying, a Jedi never deals in absolutes. Yeah, exactly. Well, wait a second. The entire thing was about absolutes <laughs> up until like five minutes ago. You know, That kind of stuff drives me crazy. I think the last movie was an attempt to, to fix so many problems in the old movies yeah. that it got, like they, they attempted to fix the mitochlorian nonsense by saying, oh, well, yeah. it could be anyone. It could be like this random kid. So, okay, that's sort of back to what I thought it was when I was a kid, which yeah. was maybe it's stronger in some bloodlines, but yeah, 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 anybody yeah. could do it. Um, but... Uh, and you actually have to work at it, this Aristotelian notion that you actually have to work at things in order to get good at them. Yeah, um, yeah. But they, 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 they pansied out. It got, to the, it got to the end. There was that one point where you see Kylo Ren and, uh, and Rey, you know, Mary Sue, uh, you know, get together and start killing people. And you're like, wow, this is something new. Like, I haven't seen this before. Yeah. And then immediately they swivel back to the original. And it's like, okay, well, if that's the case, then I'm just getting knockoff Darth Vader, who's not as cool. Yeah, and I'm yeah. getting knockoff Luke, who's not as cool. Yeah. And I'm getting knockoff Han in the form of that pilot, whose name I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I've got Finn, who's there for no reason and should have died in the last movie. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I'm, I'm, there was something deeply non-conservative about the film in the sense that, my, actually, this is my favorite part of the meta of the film, is that there's, there's part where Kylo Ren turns to her right after that and he goes, there are all these old people. Let's just kill all the old people, right? Let's just kill all the old people, and then we'll take over, and we'll run the universe. Don't have to deal with the old people anymore because they're annoying. And all that's, and she's like, no, we can't do that. We will fight. Okay, that entire movie is about killing off all the old yeah, people yeah, 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 so yeah, all yeah. the new people can take their places yeah, 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 yeah. in a way that young people will suddenly resonate. Like, yeah, I'm sorry. You, first of all, they ruined my childhood in The Force Awakens. Turning Han Solo into a loser, divorced dad with bad kids, yeah, yeah, yeah. you go to hell. Yeah, Han Solo right. was the coolest guy, yeah. and he had the happy ending with, with Princess Leia. Yeah. And there were a whole set of, of used-to-be canon books, right, yeah. which actually were pretty good yeah. about what happened after that and yeah. how they had kids and they had twins and this whole thing. And uh, uh, it's just... Uh, it's gross. No, it was. I mean, you're right. It was. It was basically the movie version of Walmart clearing out old inventory. <laughs> exactly. Right. And and now you know that they're going to get. Rid of, I mean, they have to get rid of Leia now because she's already dead in real life. Yeah, so right. now they have to get rid of her. And they had the opportunity to do that, and then they changed the rules of the Force in the movie. Yeah, her flying through space and all that. Yeah, kind of stuff. that's yeah. amazing. So, um, you were not actually a comic book guy, though, right? I like comic books. Okay. Um, I'm a DC, not a Marvel guy. Oh, so you're just wrong. Okay. Um, <laughs> Me and David uh, French for the win. Yeah. That's it. <laughs> uh, that's, we're not going to do that right now because I know we got to wrap this up. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I started to peter out on reading the comics around the time the Thanos Infinity Stones became a real thing, and I know they had to cut out certain characters and all that. But I don't remember, and I suppose I should just look it up, that Thanos's goal was this Malthusian nonsense, right? That killed half the people. I, I don't remember it, honestly. And if it was, then shame on me for not kindling hatred for it for a much longer period of time. <laughs> but it is such a dumb idea, right? I mean, like, the Malthus, Malthus gets a bad rap, right? Because Malthus mm-hmm. was right for most of human history. Right, if you're living in a limited area with no capacity for creative growth, then sure. Right, where innovation is... If you actually have a lifeboat, then lifeboat ethics apply. Like, this right. Is- <laughs> that's right, that's right. And for most of human history, I mean, I did this whole book about this, where <laughs> Malthus is right until about 
1650. And then all of a sudden he's wrong, right? <laughs> and if you've conquered faster than light travel and the ability to manipulate matter, right? He's got infinity stones that manipulate reality and create things. Yeah, so the idea that you're doing humanity, or not even humanity, a life, this great favor by killing half of it. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Makes no sense whatsoever. And like, if that, if that, like, when they tried to do the backstory for Hannibal Lecter, they had to explain all this, the Nazis were mean to him and he had to eat people to survive and he internalized <laughs> it and he decided he was going to marry it with good cuisine or whatever like that. If they're going to try and do that with Thanos, I need a better story And they could have done it so easily, us. right? What they could have done is they, and they would have even set up further sequels. They could have said there's an existential threat to the universe that limits your capacity to grow. Yeah, yeah. Right, Some, like there's, yeah. like we've reached the outer limits of the universe and there are no parallel, I know this would be, brutal for, for the comic book industry, but there are no parallel universes. There is no multiverse. There is just this universe that is right. finite and we've grown to its capacity or we are growing to its capacity or or you give the, uh, or you give the uh, what was the name of the, or the interstellar thing, that the resources are dying. Right. right? The, the, the crops are dying for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. And now the question is, do you have the optimism of Iron Man that we're going to be able to conquer anything no matter what comes or do you have the pessimism and realism of Thanos? Right. And then it's like, okay, that, that's basically the argument that Ra's al Ghul has with Christian, with uh, with Batman in the first Batman right. Begins. Um, but yeah, I, I thought that his his motivation was or, completely. Or maybe he's just a bad guy and he wants to be God. You know, and that's right. a, that's a good reason to stop him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, th this is actually one of the things that that. So at least they gave him some backstory. This is my big. Crit I know you don't want to get in DC versus Marvel. My big critique of of Marvel is that Marvel has basically one good villain. Uh, Magneto is a good villain. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, other than that, it's it's all about the heroes in Marvel. Uh -huh. In 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 uh, DC, it's all about the villains, and the uh -huh. villains are much more interesting, right? Joker. Yeah, yeah. If you had to name top five villains in all comic books, probably four of the top five are are DC. Yeah, Joker, who who's obviously a, a top five villain. Uh, you have Lex Luthor, who's obviously a top five villain. Um, you have even in in some of the more ancillary comics, they have some pretty good villains. I'm trying to remember who else were the were the big villains when I was when I was growing up. Now now I'm missing it. But if you, if you there are about four very good villains in in Batman alone, right? I mean, Ra's al Ghul is a very good villain. Um, I'm trying to think. I of know you're a huge Penguin fan. Oh, <laughs> of course I'm. I'm Jewish. I mean, come on, um, he's a stereotype. <laughs> um, um, he chants at my shul. That's that's what we do. Um, I would argue Magneto was a really good villain. Magneto's um, great. He's sort of an anti-hero more than he is a villain. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's fair. Um, by the way, I thought that I thought X Men First Class is one of the best is one of the best better uh, comic book movies of the last twenty years. Yeah, I, I really like First Class. The first half of it is terrific. Where I just I just want you know I mean it's sort of like I'm sort of fascinated with you know whether or not the Eastern Orthodox and the Catholics can close the schism and reunite the faith. Mm -hmm. I don't want Marvel and DC to be married because that's really that's that's Christianity and Islam. They're yeah, just that, different things, <laughs> right? But this idiocy where because of the different production companies bought the different characters, so like. You can't mention mutants in the event and right. the, the Disney version of Marvel Universe, and you can't and you can't mention adamantium. You have to have vibranium instead, and all of this kind of crazy stuff. The idea that you would have the Infinity Wars without the X Men showing up, yeah, just is, hanging out somewhere, is kind of insane, you know. And that kind of stuff really kind of drives me crazy. But that's you know, that's a problem of late stage industrial capitalism, <laughs> um, which we'll have to tackle in another episode. <laughs> we'll of this. go full Schumpeter. Never go full Schumpeter. Um, <laughs> Anyway, uh, Ben, I really want to thank you for doing this. And, well, thanks for having um, me. It's always fun. I, I normally just get to listen to your show, not talk on it. So this is the one. Will be, this will be the one I skip. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, um, congrats on all the success. And um, I'm assuming that you're going to let me out of here alive because 
Um, it's not entirely clear, but uh, uh, but no, this is great. And um, we'll see if the sharks are hungry. Fair enough. Yeah, and 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 whether or not you know the laser batteries have been recharged. Exactly. So, all right. Thanks a lot. Hey, thanks a lot.